So I love that. We uh, sang that in the first service and said, sit and listen. And I did. I just listened. I was just overwhelmed by the words. And then in the second service here, he said, sit and listen. And you didn't. And I'm so glad you didn't because I didn't want to sit there anymore. And uh, so thanks for uh, your worship leadership. What a great song. Many of us can remember leaving home for the first time. It may have only been a, uh, for a weekend youth retreat or, or maybe more permanently to go off to college or some new job in some new place. We, we can remember the instructions given us by our parents, usually mom, that when something like this in rapid fire, drive safely, don't speed, let us know when you get there, don't forget to write, well, that's for those of us who are older, call or text often meaning daily, uh, do your homework, eat right, brush your teeth, wash your clothes every once in a while, don't stay up all night, you know, playing video games, don't sit too close to the TV or the computer screen, let us know if you need anything and go to church. Dad is usually more direct, like, <laughs> uh, see ya, be good. I can remember talking to my dad on the phone, uh, we get to the end of the conversation and he would say, see you later, bye, click, not not kidding, not making that up. Now, I, I am sure there were many other instructions and, and, and probably more when you made those daily um, phone calls. Honey, are you getting um, enough sleep? Are you doing well in school? Are you getting enough to eat? Uh, the point is, parents will always be parents with lots of instructions. To be clear, that's our job. And when time is limited, those final instructions can come out rather haphazardly uh, and rapidly. As you're driving off, we're still yelling instructions, put both hands on the wheel. And yet, as final instructions, they are important. In our study of Hebrews a few weeks ago, the end of Hebrews 11, uh, nearing the end of our study, I suggested that the author glanced at his watch and realized that it was about out of time and said, and, and what more shall I say for time will fail me if I tell of, and then he gives a very, rather long list of names which he thought belonged in the hall of faith, but like any good pastor who says in conclusion and preaches for another 15 or 20 minutes, our author goes on to write two more chapters, which is good for like, I don't know, 10 or 15 sermons. But like mom giving final instructions, he starts covering things rather rapidly. Now, they may not be haphazard, but it will be a little bit more challenging for us to discern the flow. You'll see what I mean as we read our text this morning. Hebrews 12, verses 12 and following say this. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it uh, many be defiled. And that there be no immoral or godless person uh, like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Before he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And you expect him to say, and eat well and, don't, and get plenty of sleep. These are just kind of, at first glance, rather final random instructions. And I do think the author is wrapping things up, giving some final quick thoughts. But they may not be as random as they first appear. 
You see the word, uh, the text there begins with the word, uh, therefore, tying it with what has come before. As a result of what I've just said, therefore, there are some things that you should do. Well, what is it that he has just said? Over the past two weeks, he said, therefore, pointing back to chapter 11, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, run your races with endurance. I mean, glance at those great examples of faith, but keep your eyes fixed on on Jesus, who is the goal uh, of our faith. He's the author and the perfecter of faith. And he too, like many of those in the hall of faith, faced trial and hardship and persecution, even to the point of death. But, but, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. I know you're facing hostility. And then last week, amazingly, we saw even our hostility, the hostility directed toward us, opposition and persecution. (laughs) Amazingly, he said, are for our good. God allows them, further even brings them to discipline us, to mature us, to teach us, to grow us. After all, what son or daughter who is loved uh, doesn't receive discipline? So also our heavenly Father loves us and proves it by his continual training and instruction. You see, God wants us to share in uh, his holiness and to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So consider these these kind of final instructions, the drive safely and uh, eat right instructions. Therefore, he returns to the idea of a race with which he began the chapter of running with endurance. Therefore, and he makes a, a very significant change. We must not miss it. It's the theme of the text. Therefore, strengthen the hands. Notice, not your hands. The hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your, and your is in the plural, for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may uh, may not be put out of joint. The idea is hurt further, sprained or disjointed, but rather be healed The the author is quite familiar with the Old Testament as we've seen. He's actually quoting a couple of Old Testament passages. The first is found in Isaiah 35. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come. He's coming and he will save you. The the context there in Isaiah is the coming of Babylonian captivity. God had promised not not to leave them, but but the captives will eventually undoubtedly become discouraged. So Isaiah, in advance, seeks to encourage them, strengthen those with weak hands and feeble knees. Be be strong. I, I I know it's been a long time. Has it been a long time for you? Have you been wondering how long is it going to take? Be strong. God will come and he will rescue you. Strengthen weak hands and feeble knees. Say to those among us who are struggling, be strong, fear not. Listen to me, my brothers and sisters, God is coming. He will save us. I know it's tough. I know the challenges actually in our country I've been warning us are getting tougher. But be strong. God will come and he will deliver us. You ever feel like you're alone? You ever feel like that you can't continue? Be strong. 
here's his point, the thread that runs through this entire text. He's introduced this idea of a race. But this is not an individual race. Yes, you have a race to run, but you do not run it alone. I said a couple of weeks ago, the difference in this Christian race and every other race is that we are not competing against each other. Everyone who competes and completes the race gets the prize. This is not a matter of demonstrating how much better I run than you, how much faster, stronger, better equipped, better trained, and better prepared I am. No, God saves us individually through our individual faith, but then having saved us, it is a community trip. He places us in a community called the church, a community, it's a community race to heaven. Here's the point today, we need each other. You can't do this alone. Struggling today? Struggling in the Christian faith? Who do you have in your life that is helping you along the way? Look around. This is not just uh, doing well personally, spiritually, although it includes that. It is about this community of of believers doing well. This community doing well. So look around. You can tell those who are exhausted, can't you? Those who are struggling, gasping for air, finding it difficult to take another step. What do we do? Do we just leave them behind and say, see you at the finish line if you make it? We fix our eyes on Jesus, but we glance around to help others in the race. This is what he is saying today. If you have ever run a long distance crazy as it is, like a marathon. You you know when you're tired. I've run some long distances, not that long. Your hands are flopping around. Your knees are aching against the endless pounding of the pavement. Now, now maybe this morning, even as Seth said, maybe in your race, you might not be struggling right now. You breezed in here this morning. Everything's going great, feeling good. But others around you may not be in the same place. There may be people here, I'm talking here, who are struggling. You can see the telltale signs. What are they? There are those who drift. Those who begin to question the, the, the validity of the Christian faith. The exclusive claims of Christ. Certainly, certainly, Jesus isn't the only way. I mean, other religions will get you there. And, and then we remember the words of Hebrews too. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The salvation that Jesus alone brought. He alone provided. There are those who have struggling by exchanging beliefs and behavior. What do I mean by that? Well, the Christian faith says there is such a thing as sin and righteousness, and we're as followers of Christ to say no to sin and yes to Christ and righteousness. But we all know people, don't do we not? We all know people who have professed Christ for a while, but they wanted to engage in some behavior that was inconsistent with their beliefs, with the Christian faith. And, and so they had a decision to make, beliefs or, or behavior. You see, those have to line up, and if they do not line up, then something must go. And sometimes, frankly, it is beliefs. Not always. You've known people who have drawn a line in the sand and said, no, I will, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, I will follow Christ. I will not engage in that behavior. But you also have known people who have said, I want to do the behavior. And so, therefore, I will reject the belief. 
And we remember the words of Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, that there not be any one of you. This is a community trip, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Who do you have in your life who will call out sin in your life? Who's, in whose life are you involved such that you can call out sin? My brothers and sisters, this is a community trip. You can't do it alone. You mean our battle against sin itself? That seems rather personal. That's a community effort. You bet it is. It's like mom saying, don't stay up late, or, or dad saying, be good. What about those who don't grow in the Christian life? We've all known them. They've never been discipled. They don't really spend much time in the Word. They show up here on occasion on Sunday morning to get a little Jesus fix. They, they, they never really grow up beyond salvation. That's, that's really all I need. I don't, I don't need, we hear that a lot, don't we? I don't need doctrine and, 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 and theology. That's so divisive. John MacArthur said, when people tell me that doctrine divides, I say you're right. It divides truth from error. You see. And we remember the words of Hebrews 5 concerning him, that is Melchizedek. We have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary oracles, uh, principles of the oracles of God. You become, you come to need milk and not solid food. You never grew up. Grow up. We got to do that together, you see. I could go on and on. The primary reason for writing this letter is because there, there were some readers who were facing persecution because of their new faith in Jesus, and they were wondering whether or not it was worth it. Maybe you're wondering whether or not it's worth it. They were considering quitting Christianity, returning to Judaism, and he warns them over and over, don't do that. Do you, do you know anyone like that who, when faced with a particularly trying, difficult time, began to question God's goodness? is whether or not God could be trusted. I've heard that recently. I'm not sure God can be trusted. And they think about quitting. And some, frankly, do. And, and we don't see them anymore. They don't gather with believers for worship and fellowship and growth in, in the faith. We don't do life with them anymore and they with us. And we remember the words of Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stimulate one another. It's a community trip. To one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We can all remember some who used to be here. Again, I'm not just talking about Sunday morning. We were involved in their lives, they in ours. And there are all kinds of signs of those struggling in the race. No doubt, people come to mind. You have some in mind? I do, right now. Do we just leave them? Well, it's kind of personal. Faith is a personal thing. It's kind of up to them. Or do we encourage them, warn them, and go after them? Do we strengthen weak hands and feeble knees? Do we hold them up in the race, remembering, listen to me, that eternity is at stake? He's going to say that in a minute. Do we do everything we can to make straight paths for them? That, by the way, is a quote of Proverbs chapter 4, which says, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. 
I want you to understand something. The author takes this and makes it plural. Do what you can to smooth things out is the idea. Make straight paths. And he makes it plural for, how do we say this? You all or all of you all feet. It's everybody, you see. And if someone stumbled such that they sprained an ankle, do what you can to help the sprain heal. Don't let them fall behind in the community race. We know people like that who have been weaving in the race, right? I mean, we, we look at them when we can see them and they're kind of wandering and kind of going back and forth, but hardly making it up the hill and they have to kind of go back and forth. And before you know it, we don't even see them anymore or they've wandered off the path. What do we do? Don't let them fall behind in the community race. I guess since I just finished the first point, I ought to give you the outline. <laughs> I get excited. I got excited writing on Sunday, and I thought, oh, I didn't do the outline. Well, I'll do it here. Let's run together, helping each other in the race. And then there are things to pursue together. And there are things that we are, need to forsake together to prevent in each other's lives together. This is going to come a bit as a bit of a shock. There are things that I need to prevent in your life and you in mine. Point two, as we are running, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see God. Do you see why I am saying that, the, that eternity is at stake? Again, he starts sharing final instructions. The, word, the, the verb in the sentence is pursue. It's a strong word. It's an interesting word choice. It's the word that is often translated persecute. The idea is to run after or pursue, persecute with great effort. Some translations even have it. Make every effort. Do everything that you can to seek peace and sanctification. It speaks of in, intensity and urgency. This is serious. By the way, it's in the plural. All of you together pursue two things. First, peace. With who? With all men. What men? Is he talking about Christians or non-Christians? Those with whom we do life together or those who are persecuting us? Well, he says all men, all, all people, so certainly... We pursue peace with other Christians, of course, but he broadens it, most agree, incredibly, to say, pursue peace, run after peace with all people, including non-Christians, even those who are persecuting us. That seems to fit the context. Do everything that you can, even as they oppose you, to find peace with them. Remember, several verses in the New Testament which speak of pursuing peace. I'll mention just two or three. Jesus himself, but blessed are the peacemakers, for they and they alone, in the emphatic, will be called sons of God. When everything in you wants to rise up and fight against those who are persecuting you and to defend yourself and to fight back, pursue peace. Romans 12, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with who? All men. Later in Galatians, he's speaking of the fruit of the Spirit, he reminds us that one of those is peace, love, joy, peace. In other words, Peace, which is the fruit of righteousness we saw last week, is to be, listen, is to be characteristic of God's people. Peace. 
even when ridiculed, even when opposed, even when persecuted. While they are persecuting, pursue, he uses the same word. Pursue peace with them through your righteousness. By the way, peace is not just the absence of conflict, it is the presence of righteousness. Which, by the way, is why he says, secondly, we are to pursue sanctification. That's a big theological term that refers to holiness. We could say, pursue holiness. And we remember from last week that God disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness and produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Meaning, get this, put it together, Christians are to be holy, peaceful people. Does that describe you? What does it mean to pursue sanctification? Well, when, when God saves us, let me do just a little bit of theological teaching here. When God saves us, he declares us righteous or holy. Our sins are removed, we receive the righteousness of Christ, and we are now, listen, positionally holy. This is called justification, all right? We are justified, we are declared righteous, and we are positionally holy. But now we pursue not positional holiness, we have that provided through the work of Christ on his cross. No, we pursue practical holiness such that our practice, which is down here, begins to match our position, you see. That's sanctification, meaning we actually work, well, (laughs) it's God working in us with whom we cooperate to be more and more holy to be more like Jesus. You see, I don't know about you, but I am not perfectly holy. I want to be. I I want to grow. And along the way, God disciplines and trains and matures me to be holy. How long does he do that? Well, until I die. You see, there are two ways that my practical holiness will perfectly match my positional holiness. Ready? Here they are. One is when you die, or second is if Jesus comes back to get you. Until then, until death, or until his return, I pursue, remember, with intensity and urgency, I pursue sanctification. Because without it, no one will see the Lord. Time out. You say, wait just a minute. I've got to pursue righteousness to see God. I th- everybody knows Ephesians 2. I thought I was saved by grace through faith and that not of myself. Are you saying that salvation through the gospel is not enough? That if I do not per- pursue pers- uh, sanctification, I won't finally be s- saved? What gives you? What are you saying? It's not me, it's him. If you do not pursue sanctification, he says you will not see God, what does that mean? Yes, salvation is by grace through faith, but proof of our salvation is that we continue to grow to be more holy. You show me someone who 30 years ago got saved and is the same person as they were 30 years ago, and I will show you someone who is likely not saved. If you're expecting to use Jesus as a fire escape and you don't desire to grow in Christ's likeness, you are proving that you really do not know Jesus, which is why you will not see the Lord. You want to name Jesus and live however you want? I really enjoy my sin. 
I have no confidence, nor does this author, in your salvation. And nor should you. True Christians pursue practical holiness. So that's what we pursue, but what do we seek to get rid of, to prevent, not only in our lives, but in each other's lives? We remember verse one of the chapter, lay aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. What sin? Glad you asked, point three, verses 15 to 17. There are three things that he says to lay aside. Actually, he says, see to it that there not be among you is the idea. See to it that there not be here among us. As followers of Jesus, the following three things. First, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Ah, I don't, sure, I like that one either. What does that mean? We can actually want God's grace, have God's grace, and somehow come short of God's grace, lose it? No. Uh, In the context of the book, the author has been warning his readers not to commit apostasy, not to leave the faith. In doing so, he is suggesting you come short of God's grace. You have got to continue to believe, continue in grace, complete the race in order not to fall short of it. You must continue to believe to make it to the finish line. I can't tell you the number of funerals that I've been to where I've heard people say, well, I know that he was saved when he was 16. I know he didn't act like it the last 40 years, but he made a profession of faith. What do I do with that? God's grace is available to everyone who believes, but continued faith is necessary. Walking away is evidence that you never had faith and therefore you never had the grace of God. Lots of discussion about this. We talked about it in our study of the book of Hebrews with some difficult passages. Some say that you can have God's grace and then lose it. Others say that you um, cannot lose God's grace, therefore you only appeared to have it. I personally very strongly do not believe that you can lose your salvation. Regardless of your position here this morning, the point here is that God's grace is freely available and so therefore don't squander it. Don't think I'll use it to get what I want. Use it to get what God wants, and that's fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Notice, see to it that no one else comes short of it either, squanders it. It's my job, it's our job to make sure that none of us walks away. The trip to heaven is a community trip. We are watching out for each other, making sure no one falls short of God's grace. Second, see to it that uh, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, because by it many have been defiled. (laughs) This is one of the favorite verses for everybody to wrench out of its context. Okay, And we, there are a plethora of interpretations of this particular passage. Many suggest that we are not supposed to let bitterness gain root in our hearts and, and produce the further fruit of bitterness and unforgiveness and, 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 and being sour. Don't do that. Be patient people, forgiving people, kind people. Don't be bitter. Don't be unforgiving. That is true. All of that is true. But is that the teaching of this text? I know you're wondering. You see, both the context here and the Old Testament text quoted give further clarity. The Old Testament text is Deuteronomy 29, and it's critically important. Moses is preparing the children of Israel to go into the land of promise. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. 
through the Ammonites and the Amorites and then the Moabites. And you've seen their detestable things. You've seen their false gods, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Be careful, he warns them. Don't worship false gods. It matters. Listen, there is a rising movement in our nation today in churches that call themselves churches that it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe something. Moses says no, so does our author. It matters what you believe. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Again, Moses is preparing the people to go into the promised land. Finally, after 40 years of wandering. Remember, our author mentioned this, that rebellious generation before. Their bodies fell in the wilderness. They did not enter the land. They did not enter his rest because of unbelief. Don't be like them. Now he's preparing the new generation. It's time to go in, but don't let anyone among you. This is important. Don't let anyone among you turn from the Lord and serve other gods. In other words, we serve the true and the living God. Don't turn away from him. Beware lest there be a root of idolatry and apostasy among you which produces bitter fruit. That's the idea. I want to be very clear. As long as I'm alive, I will not allow in this church pluralism. The idea that if you'll just believe something, you'll be okay. I want to be very clear. You will not be okay. In this nation that used to be called a Christian nation, do you know what the fastest growing religion is in the United States? Islam. Should I just let you go? Doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. I want to say to you unabashedly that there is only one way, there is one truth, and that is found in Jesus Christ. We remember the author's warning about apostasy. Here the point of Moses and our author is warning them to keep an eye on each other and defend the truth. Biblical orthodoxy, the truth that there is God and there is no other. To challenge each other. Don't be wooed. I'm listening. I'm challenging you right now. I want you to challenge me. I want you to challenge each other. Do not be wooed by the culture. Don't give into the eye that leaving, walking away from Christianity is okay. It doesn't matter. You'll be okay. You will not be okay. Don't walk away from the faith. Jesus alone has the words of truth. And if we see a root of bitterness, a, bitter, a, a root that produces the bitter fruit of apostasy, we must deal with it because it is eternally damning. Third, very quickly, I'm about out of time, see to it that there be no immoral, that is, the, the word is pornos, from which we get our word porn or pornography, the word always means sexual immorality. See to it that there be no sexually immoral or godless person among you like Esau. I want to be very clear. We are to be concerned about each other's purity and godliness. If we know a professing brother or sister is involved in sexual immorality or ungodliness, we should, we must do something about it. We should rescue them from sin that so easily entangles. And if they refuse to be rescued, they refuse to repent. I'm fine like I am. Painfully, we should remove them.
I'm talking about professing believers. I'm not talking about unbelievers. Professing believers who get involved in sexual sin, who are ungodly, who have been lovingly and graciously confronted and have no desire to repent. We cannot allow them to remain. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, Paul says. Expel the moral brother or sister. Are you? I, I know people here who profess to be believers, and I know that he or she is sleeping with her boyfriend, or uh, I know so and so is married and is f- fooling around with. Then we must do something about it. Like Esau helps us understand what the author means by being godless. You remember the story? Esau was Jacob's twin, but he came out first, which makes him the firstborn, which meant he had the rights of the firstborn, a double inheritance and a double blessing. He would carry on, don't miss this, he would carry on the family name and the family line to include the covenant promises made to Abraham and Isaac. But do you notice that today we do not say Abraham, Isaac, and Esau? Why? Right here. Because Esau was more concerned about earthly things than God's promises. Indeed, he cared more about a bowl of soup than he did his firstborn right. One day he comes in from hunting. He's famished. Jacob has just finished preparing a meal, a meal of lentil stew. Esau says, give me a bowl of stew. Jacob cunningly says, I will exchange it for your birthright. Esau says, what is that to me? I'm starving. And he sold his birthright, which entitled him to the f- fulfillment of the promises of God. He can't listen. He cared more about the stuff of this earthly life than the things of God. That is what it means to be godless. To care more about this than to care about this. My brothers and sisters, I can think of no more important text for American Christianity than this one because American Christianity says that you can love Jesus and your stuff too. I'm not saying you can't love your car. Love your car. But if it even gets close to Jesus, it's got to go. I'll take it for you. We're not exactly sure what the author means when he called Esau sexually immoral. He married two Canaanite or Hittite women, uh, which grieved his parents. Later, Jewish tradition referred to that decision as Esau being sexually immoral. Again, we're not sure, but apparently because the author says so, he was. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. We cannot tolerate sexual sin among us. We must graciously and gently confront and call for righteousness. And further, further, we must also, it's, it's easy to talk about sexual sin, Well, maybe. Um, But we must also watch out for each other. Listen, to not be too focused on the stuff of this life. You know people who the stuff of this life is more important than Jesus and yet they name the name of Christ. We must graciously and gently point each other's eyes heavenward. Verse 17 You know that even afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, the blessing of the firstborn, he could not. He had despised it. When Isaac was old, he prepared to give his blessing to his boys, but Jacob deceived his father, came in dressed like Esau, received his father's firstborn blessing. Esau came in later and through tears sought a blessing. The point of verse 17 is the deed had been done. Esau was rejected and could not find repentance or the blessing, you see, meaning He could not change what was already done. Esau was not seeking repentance because it was wrong. He was seeking repentance because he wanted the blessing. Do you see? He was still seeking the stuff of this life. 
That won't work. So there you have it. The beginning of the final instructions to us. Here they are. Help each other in the race. Number one, help each other. Let's keep our eyes on each other. Second, pursue peace and sanctification together. Third, there are some things that we must prevent in each other's lives. See to it that no one falls short of God's grace by leaving. See to it that no one turns to apostasy and thus infects the body. See to it that there is not a sexually immoral or godless person among us. Not talking about unbelievers now. I'm talking about believers. The overall truth of this text is this. The trip to heaven is a community trip. You can't do it by yourself. Love each other. Help each other. Watch out for each other because eternity is at stake. This is serious.